I love bacon cheeseburgers. I mean, I really love bacon cheeseburgers. Every time I go to a restaurant and I don't order a bacon cheeseburger, I typically regret it. And normally when you go to a restaurant, they try to lure you in the door by talking about their grass-fed, 100% Angus beef. It usually works for me. Scientists and farmers have always are always working on trying to improve the quality of their meat. Uh, one such scientist, Temple Grandin, did research on how to kill cows gently. Uh, he, he knew that when animals experience high stress, right at their death, they produce hormones. And those hormones reduce the quality of the meat. In Grandin's research, he discovered how to eliminate the stress of a cow's death. His findings were uh, kind of shared in a book by Russell Moore called Tempted and Tried. Moore summarizes the account this way. Workers shouldn't yell at the cows, Grandin said, and they should never use cattle prods because they are counterproductive and unneeded. If you just keep the cows contented and comfortable, they'll go wherever they're led. Don't surprise them. Don't unnerve them. Above all, don't hurt them. Well, at least until you slit their throats at the end. Along the way, Grandin devised a new technology that was revolutionized the ways the big slaughter operations. In the system, the cows aren't prodded off a truck but are led in silence onto a ramp. They go through a squeeze chute, a gentle pressure device that mimics a mother's nuzzling touch. The cattle continue down the, the ramp into a smoothly curving path. There's no sudden turns. The cows experience the sensation of going home the same kind of way they've traveled many times before. As they mosey along the path, they don't even notice that their hooves are no longer touching the ground. A conveyor belt slightly lifts them gently upward, and then a blunt instrument levels a surgical strike between the eyes. They're transitioned from livestock to meat, and they're never aware enough to be alarmed by any of it. The pioneer of this technology commends it to the slaughterhouses and affectionately has given it this nickname, calls it the stairway to heaven. Now, Grandin discovered how to, how to de-stress cows. He says the key is to keep everything in their lives feeling and looking as normal and natural as possible. This is a, a warning to us on how the world desires to subtly and calmly bring us to a gentle yet complete death. Moore adds this. He says, forces are afoot right now, negotiating how you get fat enough for consumption and how you get calmly and without struggle to the cosmic slaughterhouse floor. The easiest life for you will be one which you don't question these things, a life which seems, which you simply do what seems natural. The ease of it all will seem to be further confirmation that this is the way things ought to be. You might feel as though your life situation is like progressing up a stairway so perfect. It is as though it was designed just for you. And it is, in many ways, the more tranquil you feel, the more endangered you are. Friends, do not be deceived. The world and its desires will meet a sudden and complete end. And they desire to take as many with them as possible. 
It is, it is so easy to be seduced and distracted by our world. John reminds us this morning to, to fight against the seduction of the world by telling us that its end is sure. And I pray that God would awaken us from this world's seductive slumber so that we can live, as the text says, called, chosen, and faithful to the Lamb. If you remember last week, John kind of closes out his bowl uh, sequence, this bowl judgment sequence, and begin, that he begins to uh, share with the seven churches of Asia. In these last five chapters, 17 through 22, he, he shows the end of the city of man and the coming of the city of God. When we see the reality of the coming judgment, our choice should be easy. And yet the world is seductive. And it catches many. And it could catch any of us in its grip. Look back at the text this morning, Revelation 17.1. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. The identity of the prostitute is defined at the end of the chapter. So look with me at the end of this chapter, verse 18. It says, And the woman you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Uh, the, the prostitute is a representative or an embodiment of the city that stands against God. In John's day, it would have been clear that this was Rome. As John already has warned the churches in his, in his letters in chapters 2 and 3 that Rome's powerful, seductive influence wants them to compromise their allegiance to the Lord Jesus. John hints that this woman is not only Rome, but probably has a broader meaning of all the, the great cities that stand against God. Look in verse 5. It says that the name of this woman is Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations. Babylon, the great evil city that persecuted Israel. Rome, the great city that persecuted Christians, are representing that great city of man that stands against the purposes of God. Now, we know there are abominations happening in rural villages and small, quaint towns. Sin is rampant everywhere. It may be more obscure or hidden in towns like ours. Cities flaunt and revel in their sin. I've had a chance of living in several cities, Washington, D.C., uh, New York City. And when you're in New York City, the, the, the town really comes alive at, at night. It is known for the, as a city that never sleeps. Streets are alive with people, soaking up the, all that the world has to offer. From music to booze to sex, the city is known for sin. Even Las Vegas has adopted that name itself, sin City. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. In developed countries like ours, 75% of the entire population lives in cities. John is probably not referring here to a, the literal sexual immorality. If you look back at verse 2, it says, The kings of the earth who have committed sexual immorality, with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. What he's probably pointing at here is a spiritual infidelity. But the passage that, that Daniel read in James chapter 4 is, is, is common language, both in the New and the Old Testament. 
is that when you don't follow the Lord who made you and live for His glory, you are committing spiritual adultery, spiritual fornication. He wants to put a very graphic picture on how, how it is to not serve the living God. Now, although I think it may include sexual immorality, it's not limited to it. The city of man represents the desires of man that stand against the Lord. And, beloved, the desires of man are in all of us. We know from what Paul said in Romans chapter 7, when we desire to do right, evil is right there with us. The more we grow closer to the Lord, sometimes we are more aware of our sinful tendencies. The influence of this city is vast and will lead many to destruction. Revelation 17.1 says the prostitute of the city is over many waters. Later defined in verse 15 as the people, peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. Those dwellers of the earth, those are the, the non-believers who have yet bowed their knee to Christ. So the city wants to pull as many into its web, to fatten us up, to make us unaware for the day of slaughter is coming. And we must stay awake for her ways and stand firm in the Lord. So, how does this worldly city seduce us? Six points this morning. I know you're excited. That means you're going to be here till 11 o'clock tonight. Right? First point, the seduction of power. The seduction of power. You know, power is intoxicating. It is dangerous. It is unlikely, although possible, that any of us here will be in the kind of international or national positions of power. Although we may not possess the high levels of power, we're still in danger of being seduced by it. The, the prostitute led many in her path. Look at verse 6. It says, John speaking, When I saw her, I marveled greatly. The Apostle John, when he saw the image of this prostitute, he marveled greatly. You know, it's power has a way of impressing people. It's one of the reasons why when you meet a, a politician or uh, a great athlete or a celebrity, sometimes people can't even speak. <laughs> They're so shocked by, by their presence. The city of man is powerful and wants all to follow it. And look at what the angel says to John about why he's astonished. He says in verse 7, But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman. Now remember, mystery is things that were hidden, but now are made, made known. It's not... We, we know what this mystery is. He, he, the angel defines it. And of the beast of the seven hands of the ten horns that carry through. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast, because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, and it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings, who have not yet received royal power. And they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. 
These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. I just love that question that the angel poses to John. Why do you marvel? The world, those who dwell on the earth, the na- those whose names are not written in the book of life since the foundation of the world, they marvel at the power of the world, but you are not like them. You belong to the Lamb. Friends, we are, are, are called to be in this world, but not of this world. We marvel, we are astonished, we are amazed at the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. His victory over sin and, and death. He has the true power. Why would you, who have been born again by the, by, the, by, the, by the blood of the Lamb, why would you marvel at those who hate the Lamb, who want to make war on the Lamb and His, his saints? You can respond to power as a believer or as an unbeliever, in faith or in sin. Now, there's much debate in this section of who these seven kings are, the five who have fallen and the two more that is to come, one who is and the one who is yet to come. Uh, some believe they're actual kings or representations of empires that have actually existed. Uh, I think it's hard to decipher with any accuracy who these kings are referring to. Um, it probably is more of a representation of all the kings that stand against the Lord, that seven being that, that number of completeness and totality. The seven heads, referring to the seven mountains, is probably a, a reference to Rome. Rome was known as the, as the city that was built on the seven hills. We see that throughout ancient literature. So I see the numbers of the seven kings and the ten kings as symbolic, representing all the cities of man that stand against the Lord, which will culminate ultimately in the Antichrist and his reign. He is the one who is and is not and is to come. It's almost that same uh, language as we, we see in the beginning of Revelation, of the Father, who, is, who was, who is, and who is to come. It's this Antichrist, this imitation beast, right, who's coming to, to come in the way of the Lord. One who, who had, a, had an apparent, appearing to have a mortal wound, and then came back to life. Jesus said of himself in Revelation 118, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. The Antichrist, again, will appear to have a mortal wound and come back to life, seemingly come having a resurrection like our Lord. And because of that, he will cultivate a worldwide following. The angel warns John that there are future evil reigns coming even after Rome. Powerful leaders will continue to encourage rebellion against God and rejoice in sinful and spiritual adultery. Now, America loves power. We do not rejoice in our nation in weakness, but we marvel at power. Whether it's in politics, sports, movies, or even in the church, America loves celebrities. The power of celebrity drives sales and increases votes. As I heard earlier this week, America loves to back a winner. And we, we know that because anytime, um, if you're from a town and you don't really care about that, that team's sports, all of a sudden your team starts winning, and then all of a sudden those when the jerseys come out, right? right? We, we love to back a, a winner. 
Our culture loves power. Now, we may even hate those in power, but the extreme emotions towards those in power reveals how much we love that power. The woman, the city of man, has power over many waters, the peoples, nations, and languages. And the question is, are you being seduced by that power? Do you long for recognition by the world? The power is seductive. And I think it, it, may, it may draw us in in different ways. Maybe you're being seduced to put longer hours in at work to gain approval by those who are in power and maybe possibly neglecting your family. Or maybe you're being, produ- being seduced to agree with certain false ideologies, maybe of your boss or your teacher, maybe a leader in your friend group. Or maybe another way to discover that who has power over you is who you're trying to please. You ever, you ever ask yourself why you do certain things? Why you say certain things? And think, who am I trying to impress? Well, who you're trying to impress in many ways has power over you. Pleasing others is not inherently sinful, but it may reveal that others have more influence over you than you like. See, the prostitute in Revelation 17 will garner a worldwide following only to be met with a sudden and complete end. Look at verse 16. It says, The ten horns that you saw... They and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Evil will turn against evil. Power is intoxicating, but it is short-lived. Do not desire power or seek the approval by those in power, but honor the Lord and Him alone, for His power is supreme and eternal. Secondly, I think this has a seduction of popularity. There's a seduction from the world of popularity. It's very similar to power, but I think it's shown in different ways. It appeals for our desire for affirmation. No one likes to be the odd man out. Right? No one likes to be in the group and be that guy. Let me just say things that everybody thinks is wrong. Um, I, I have felt that lately. I've been gathering with, sometimes with groups of pastors. Um, and I feel like I'm the one that's got to raise my hand and say, Hey, have we thought of this? And, and there's, there's, a, there's a part of me that just doesn't want to speak. I would rather just be quiet and not say anything. Why? Because I want people to like me. Right? I don't want to be the guy who's always saying the, 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 the negative thing, right? The, the one who's going to challenge everything. But because I, I want to be liked and I know that about myself, I have to fight for the desire to continue to speak when others won't, even if it makes me unpopular. And most of the settings that I have, as I said, are probably people who, who, who agree with the Bible and agree with biblical truths, pastors, brothers and fellow Christians, um, brothers and sisters. And yet many of you will face that same challenge of unpopularity, but at your workplace, in an environment that may not affirm Christ. Will you choose to be unpopular for Christ? Will you choose to be that person who rolls their eyes when you speak because you're going to talk about your faith in the Lord? Are you going to choose truth over applause? I'm not saying just burn it out and and, and not be compassionate and kind. Don't hammer it and yell and scream at people, right? Do it with compassion and grace. 
But listen, if you're going to talk in our day about the truth, you're going to be unpopular. So we have to fight against that desire from the world to, to be accepted. Do not be afraid to be unpopular for the sake of Christ. The third thing, the seduction of peace. One of the subtle seductions of the world is to, is to keep the peace in social settings. I'm sure you have felt it. We don't want to ruffle any feathers or upset anyone, so we may not say anything when we need to speak of the Lord Jesus. Now, we know that the Lord Jesus has himself, but they're not come to bring peace but division. He's going to divide people based on their relationship with him. And really, all of Revelation does that, doesn't it? This whole book is, is dividing the people of the land and the people of the beast. Those who, who have been, whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world, and those who will face eternal wrath. Are you willing to intentionally upset someone, upset the peace in our families, our friends, or even our, our workplace, for the sake of the gospel and eternity? That's a hard thing to do. There's been numerous times when I, I, I know I've had the opportunity to speak, but in fear I've wilted. I pray that won't be us. That we will be seduced in the desire that we have to keep everybody happy and be peaceful. Now, can I just make an aside here? That doesn't mean do this on social media. That's probably the worst place to do it. Right? Have those conversations with people face-to-face -face because people can misread a whole lot of things that you post online. That one is free. Okay? You know, I think many of us won't speak up against things, the hot-button issues of our day, like abortion, because people may disagree with us and it may create tension. But abortion is murdering children. Break the peace for the sake of boys and girls who are made in the image of God. Many of us will not speak up against homosexuality because we're afraid of offending someone. Those who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. Break the peace for the sake of men and women who will one day stand before God in judgment. Many of us will not speak up against cohabitation or drunkenness. Will you not speak up or will not speak up against immoral TV that people are watching or immoral music that our friends are listening to? We want peace in our relationships, so why would I bring up anything that would cause tension? If you're keeping the peace hurts someone else, then you do not have a good relationship and you are not honoring God in that relationship. Speak up. This is why God has given us each other. This is why God says, come together in a local body of believers because you are easily deceived. You need people in your life to help curve you so you will not fall off the cliff into worldliness. When was the last time you invited someone into your life and say, is there anything in my life that causes you concern? Do I have any worldliness in me? And then, after you ask that question, be humble enough to respond and listen. The message of Christianity is not be moral. The message of Christianity is that we are all immoral and need a Savior. So I'm not saying just do right, honor the Lord, right, and how you live. Yes, that's true. We're called not to be drunken. We're called not to commit sexual immorality. Yes and amen. But that's not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is that you are immoral and you need a Savior. We are sinners who have wronged the Holy God and will face certain punishment if we do not repent of our sins and trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ on our behalf. Jesus 
was the only moral person. He was good in the biblical sense. Perfect. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now we are declared righteous. We have an alien righteousness from God. And yet God is not only satisfied that we would be declared righteous. He wants us to live righteously. He who is holy. He who called us is holy. So we should be holy ourselves. Our salvation is by grace. We even see that in the text. Look back in, in verse 14. At the end it says, And those who are with him, with the Lamb, are called and chosen and faithful. Amen. Our changed morality, if we live differently, is by grace. We have been chosen and called by God. We were not looking out, hey Lord, uh, I want to live for you. No, we were actually going the opposite direction. He grabbed us and said, you're mine. Amen. Now live for me. Follow the Lamb wherever you go. This is the Lord's will for us, beloved, that we would be sanctified. Resist this world's seduction and live for the Lord. Fourth, the seduction of prosperity. The seduction of prosperity. And I get this right from the text in Revelation 17.4. It says, The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and, and pearls. Friend, do not be deceived. You cannot serve both God and money. Money can control you whether you have a little or have a lot. I'll never forget that picture when I was I was 22, just graduated college, and talking to my, my one of my friends, and uh, he was an actor type. He was one of those actor types who was always struggling, didn't have a lot of money, kind of wore that on his badge that like I'm doing it for living my dreams. Um, I had another friend who was working for Wall Street, and was making a lot of money, right? And my friend who had no money was controlled more than my friend who had money. It was interesting, right? He was like, he was so angry at anybody who had money. Listen, so you don't have to have a lot to have money control you. But our culture values wealth. So be aware of that subtle pull of wealth. One of the ways God protects you from the love of money, hear me, is by asking you to give it away. When we give to the Lord in His church, we are showing that we value the gospel and eternity more than the here and now. More than comfort and earthly prosperity. You know, the great heresy of our day in the modern American church is the prosperity gospel. And not even just the prosperity gospel on the, on the far left. What happens is, is you have the, the, the true gospel and the, the true message. And what a lot of churches do, they just do this. They just step out ever so slightly from, from, from the middle, from the truth. And they lead people into, into heresy and to false hope and false assurance. That will give them a false salvation when they stand before a holy God. Friends, if you know someone caught in heresy, don't just speak about them. Speak to them. Plead with them to open their Bibles with you. They may see the goodness of salvation in Christ. Show that true prosperity is not in earthly wealth, but knowing Christ. Show them that you can repent and believe in Christ. That our light and momentary struggles of this earth pale into comparison of the future that God has promised us. Money is a terrible savior. 
Flee the love of money and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love and steadfastness. Fight the good fight of faith. Hold on to grace. Now, I heard a sermon this week, and the pastor says at the, at the door, um, every time I preach about the, the, that the money is the root of all evil, you're quick to correct me. He says, it's the love of all money that is, is the root of all evil. And he goes, why do you do that? Maybe you do that because you really love money. But I know this. As soon as you start talking about people's checkbook and how they spend their money, that's when people get offended. Right? So listen. If the world is trying to, to suck you in, seduce you, right, so that you would meet a sudden end, wouldn't you want to know if that was the case? So maybe you should have a conversation with your family this, this, this afternoon or sometime this week. How are we doing with our, with our, our worldly wealth? Are we being controlled by it or are we controlling our wealth for the glory of the Lord? Number five, the worldly seduction of pleasure. Look at verse 4 again, the second half of verse 4. It says that this woman is holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. The city of man offers all sorts of pleasures, but they will not last. Sex, drugs, pornography, gluttony will not give you Fulfillment. They are terrible gods and awful saviors. Here are the words of famous playwright Oscar Wilde, a non-believer, maybe made a deathbed confession, but a non-believer his whole life, lived a life of pleasure. Listen to what he said. The gods have given me almost everything, but I let myself be lured into long spells of senseless and sensual ease. Tired of being on the heights, I deliberately went to the depths in search of new sensation. What the paradox was to me in the sphere of thought, perversity, came to me in the sphere of passion. I grew careless of the lives of others. I took pleasure where it pleased me and passed on. I forgot that every little action of the common day makes or unmakes character. And that, therefore, what one has done in the secret chamber, one has someday to cry aloud from the housetop. I allowed pleasure to dominate me. I ended in horrible disgrace. Pleasure often leads to emptiness. Then a quest for a new and a better pleasure. Ask those who are addicted to drugs or sex how they search for new highs and new sensations. It just further takes them down a path of destruction. Wild let his pleasure dominate him and it ended in horrible disgrace. Can I just challenge you today, friends? Do not love earthly pleasures more than the Lord. They will one day pass away. They will leave you empty and longing for more. The joy of following God it far exceeds all earthly pleasures and passions. Do not drink the cup of the city of man. Drink the cup of the fellowship of our Lord, whose blood was spilled and body was broken for us. Lastly, seduction of promise. Seduction of promise. It's really kind of a, a culmination of all the different pleasures, or all the different seductions that the world offers. It's really just this promise. If you want to be happy, come to the world. Come to the city of man. But never forget 
how this scripture begins. Revelation 17.1 John was told by the angel, Come and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is the city who is seated on many waters. Judgment is coming to the city of man. If you read the, the last five chapters of Revelation, you know that the city of God is coming and the city of man will be plunged into the lake of fire. The world will not be able to fulfill your promises, its promises. It will lead people to all sorts of immorality and abominations. Those abominations will become normal to the world. Sex before marriage is normal in America. Homosexuality is celebrated. Abortion is used as, as birth control. Pornography is at our fingers. The more at home you are in this world, the greater danger you are in your soul. We are called to be in this world, but never of it. And this should really break our hearts to share the gospel, to tell people about the goodness of Christ. Too often we, 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 we lambast people who are, who are living that way or believing that way, rather than having our hearts broken having our hearts broken for them and going to them with the goodness of the gospel of Christ. We have been separated from this world. Our final home is not here, but our citizenship is in heaven. The only one who can keep the promise that is made is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The world will make war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. He's the only sovereign. He's the only one whose word is true. He calls us, He chose us, and now commands and strengthens us to be faithful for Him. The world wants to lull you to sleep. It wants to, to have us calmly go through life, to pursue wealth and pleasure, to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The world is full of false promises. It cannot fulfill what it offers. It offers power, but the meek will inherit the earth. It offers peace, but there is only peace in the blood of the cross. It offers prosperity, but the riches of grace are only lavished upon blood-bought believers. It offers pleasure, but there is only eternal pleasure at the Lord's right hand. Friend, do not be lulled to sleep by false promises of this world. Let us heed the words of great Puritan John Owen, who said, If we do not abide in prayer, we will abide in temptation. Let this one, let this be one aspect of our daily intersection. God, preserve my soul and keep my heart in all its ways so that I will not be entangled. When this is true in our lives, a passing temptation will not overcome us. We will remain free while others lie in bondage. Beloved, we want to abide in God. Please, if we please him and keep our heart in him, he will be pleased with us. We need to lay aside our sin that so easily entangles us and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We will not be lulled by the world if we are actively loving our Lord. Father, we thank you for your grace that you've given us in Christ. Father, we pray that as as we sing this next song, that we would truly mean these words. That, that you, Lord Jesus, are all the world to us. We don't want to love this world more than you. 
So God, I pray that as you have exposed that in any way this morning, we pray that we in obedience would, would follow you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.